It's absolutely an unprecedented event. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. At some point last winter, Joe DeFulgentis emailed me to share the story of a tragic and unique avalanche event that took place in Missoula, Montana in February of 2014. After chatting with him, he recommended that I talk to a couple other people that were also involved in the search and rescue events that happened after this avalanche. And so I got the perspectives of two other folks that are involved with the search and rescue organizations. Joe Blattner is the head of the local search and rescue um, volunteer group, and Matt Kearns is a captain at the local fire department and I should add, all three of these individuals are pretty avid backcountry skiers. After the interviews, that's pretty much when the easy work stopped and all the hard work began. And uh, I stepped out of the way and Wesley Gregg stepped up to the plate and he really put in most of the heavy lifting on the editing and production side of this episode. So cheers, bud. Thanks for all the help. On February 28, 2014, the community of Missoula, Montana was hit in a hard way when an avalanche was triggered in the foothills above a neighborhood. The avalanche destroyed a house, damaged several other buildings and cars, and fully buried two adults and one child while partially burying an additional child. What follows is the story of the rescue from three different voices within the search and rescue organizations. We'll start out by introducing Joe Blattner. My jobs include uh, being an instructor and uh, management director for a company called Airy Backcountry Medicine. We teach wilderness medicine courses, uh, you know, throughout the U.S. and internationally. Um, also work for the University of Montana um, as an adjunct professor. Um, I've done that for about 10 years or so. Um, I also work at St. Patrick Hospital here in Missoula. Um, as their emergency preparedness coordinator. And then in addition to all of that, I volunteer with Search and Rescue. Um, I've been doing Search and Rescue since 2008 and um, have been their chief uh, since, I guess, the last five and a half years or so. Um, So um, that's kind of Search and Rescue is what I do in, in, quote, the downtime, if that ever exists. And next, Matt Kearns will share his background. A little bit about my background. You know, I've been with the fire department for about 21 years now. Um, paramedic, captain. Um, so we deal a lot with these issues as they come across. Of course, this is one that you never really expect to see. These are what we categorize as those uh, low-frequency, high-consequence type activities, and those are the hardest for us to kind of wrap our heads around. 
Um, it's hard for us to throw money, time, tools, and training at it because you don't know what it's going to be. You know, this is a, a hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty-year event for us. Um, so it's kind of hard to have your head wrapped around that and prepare yourself for when it does happen. Um, I've got quite a bit of avalanche experience myself. Um, I'm actually an avalanche survivor. Um, so have a personal uh, connection to this as well. Um, spend a lot of time in the backcountry. Um, you know, I skied 10 years, 100 days a year. Um, so quite in tune with the outdoor world and then having to marry that then with my professional responsibilities, you know, I think added a little bit more perspective to this situation, certainly. And lastly, this is Joe DeFulgentis. After college, I moved out to, to Colorado. Okay. And yeah, you know, did that for about eight years and then uh, kind of decided to head up to Montana. So Nice. So here. right after or after Colorado, moved to Missoula straight away? No, <clears throat> moved to Bozeman for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up getting my EMT. I took an EMT course when I was there. And because uh, I, I knew I had volunteered when I moved out to Colorado, I'll kind of back up a little bit. When I moved out to Colorado, I joined the Loveland Ski Patrol just as a volunteer and did that for a few years. And when I came up to, to Bozeman, there really wasn't a volunteer um, opportunity for ski patrollers. So uh, I ended up finding one at Showdown. So mm-hmm. I did that for a year. But I got my EMT and then I patrolled at the Yellowstone Club. Yeah, so that that was a really fun time, and so I, at that time I was patrolling, uh, and then I was heading out to Oregon for the summers. Met my wife, who lives out here in Missoula, and I I got out there as fast as I could, pretty much. So, so in the production work of this episode, um, we kind of split back and forth between the three different perspectives throughout the timeline of the search and rescue. Um, so for the, for the first bit here, I'll try and introduce each person. And my hope is that you, you get used to hearing their voice and then um, I'll probably stop introducing who is who. So with that, I hope you enjoy hearing the story of the search and rescue of the Mount Jumble Avalanche in February of 2014 in Missoula, Montana. Why don't we jump into um, the events of February 28th, 2014. But I'd like to just kind of have you run down um, the events of the day. What were you doing that afternoon? Where were you when you got the call? What was the what was your initial um, response like and, and your initial perspective of coming on scene? What did you see? What did you feel? What did you hear? Stuff like that. Is, is that fair to, to ask? This is Joe Blattner. Absolutely. You bet. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, talking about that time frame, you know, Missoula as a whole, we'd been blanketed with a lot of snow, uh, snow that had stuck around the valley floor and in the the mountains, you know, immediately surrounding the area, um, you know, the the time leading up to this avalanche, we we certainly had some, you know, inclement weather, we had blizzards and and so forth. Uh, what 
What is most memorable before the incident is that, you know, a, a lot of the city of Missoula was shut down. You know, they, they shut down for emergency uh, slash essential travel only. Uh, the University of Montana, most notably, um, they shut down their classes that day. And uh, the reason why I mention that is because that's not a common occurrence. Uh, you know, more often than not, you know, university sessions will continue. And so, uh, you know, the, the, that particular day, I was at home. I was uh, on my couch, just kind of enjoying what otherwise would be uh, kind of a, an extra free day off. And, you know, paying attention to the weather, paying attention to, you know, the, the real terrible conditions that were outside. This is Matt Kearns. Okay. Um, so at the time, I was the training officer for the fire department. So I wasn't involved in operations directly. Um, and another firefighter and I had actually gone out um, and did a dawn patrol that morning to to ski Mount Sentinel, um, which sits right next to Mount Jumbo in Missoula. And I remember coming down and telling Tavis, the other firefighter, that that something was going to happen today. You know, just but really felt after that morning ski that that something was going to happen somewhere, either in the backcountry or at the ski hill. Um, had no idea it was going to be so close and impact our lives in town. This is Joe Defulgentis. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. So, um, a couple things I remember about that day were, you know, leading up to that, the weather had been pretty warm the the week before. And, um, you know, I, I was in Arlie at the time, which is about 17 miles north of Missoula. They had, you know, pretty big wind event, which wasn't uh, super common for Missoula coming out of the, a different direction than normal. It was coming from the Northeast, um, which, um, that was a pretty notable thing for our, our region. Um, but I just remember I was kind of hunkered down at home and just doing homework. So the avalanche happened around four fifteen, right? And correct. Talk a little bit about how this avalanche was triggered. All right. So um, the the events, what I understand is that there was a, there was a snowboarder and three sledders, and they headed up uh, the the main trailhead that uh, takes you up to the top of Mount Jumbo. And we're talking and about they, plastic sleds, not snowmobiles, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. So they were just recreational. Uh, Users looking to have a good time, enjoying the snow, um, you know, lot, lots of snow, lots of wind loading up there. It was, it was technically classified as a blizzard. Uh, that, so it was blizzard conditions, but they headed up the ridge and they uh, got into this gully. And I believe uh, that the snow, snowboarder decided to descend um, a short uh, distance down this little gully. And, um, as, as he was descending, he triggered a slab and it took him for a little ride, but he was able to dig in and the debris kind of went on past him. So that's kind of what happened. Well, that debris ended up heading down and channeling in and funneling into this gully and right at the bottom of this gully, uh, there were kind of two things going on. One, there was a house situated right there at the base and two, there was there was uh, uh, two kids playing in their backyard. And again, Joe Blattner. 
it was around 4.30 or so that evening, and uh, the page out uh, specifically was for an avalanche response. And the, the most notable, the most alarming component of that page was that there was a physical address listed in that page for an avalanche. Search and rescue, we're, we're accustomed to, to getting information about what happened, say, in the backcountry. We're, we're accustomed saying, you know, we're going to start at a particular trailhead and work our way to a scene or try to locate a scene. And again, Matt Kearns. After that dawn patrol, I had went to the ski hill and skied that day. And then coming down from the ski hill, um, I'd gotten the phone call from our assistant chief, Chad Nicholson, that there'd been an avalanche. Um, and what he had wanted was some technical expertise. And so he just wanted to kind of have a technical advisor on scene. Uh, phone, phone kind of blew up <laughs> out of nowhere. And one of my buddies said, are we dispatched? And I was thinking, what? He's like, check the Missoulian. So I did that and popped open my browser on the Missoulian and noticed that, uh, saw a picture of a, a girl it said Mount Jumbo avalanche. And in this case, it was, it was quite unique because we had an address listed. And immediately that put up a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, let's call it red flags of, oh, this is, this is something unique. This is something different. And, um, you know, as was the case with a lot of people, um, you know, I, I took that page. I, I let um, folks know that I would be responding to the search and rescue warehouse to, to prep equipment to, you know, get, get our resources going. Um, but in, in the, the efforts of doing so, uh, the vehicle I drove at the time, a Honda Civic, actually got stuck in the back driveway of mine. And so uh, my girlfriend had to help push me out. Uh, we had to, to dig out my vehicle. And so that entire response uh, from, you know, from me and a lot of search and rescue members hinged on our ability to get to where we wanted to go. Um, you know, that was the, the type of snow that was the, the type of condition we had in Missoula at the time. In the Rattlesnake Valley here in Missoula, it's, it's a one-way-in, one-way-out road. And so I parked probably five blocks away. Um, all of the, the little roads weren't plowed, so cars were just stuck everywhere. It was, it was chaos. And I'd had my touring gear with me. So I skinned up to the avalanche scene and uh, tied in with the battalion chief and... Uh, we just started laying the groundwork to try and manage this scene. As you can imagine, it was it was total chaos. The avalanche had swept down, had completely torn a house from its foundation. Um, and so as the first units arrived, uh, they'd gotten word that there was some burials. Um, there's live power lines that are down. Uh, there's a hit and blowing gas line in the fire department. We have very strict framework for trying to manage scene safety, rescuer safety, you know, is our top priority. But in this point, it was really difficult to try and have a completely safe and managed scene. Um, having a natural disaster of this magnitude in a residential area, um, our command and control was pretty hindered. There was no way for us to control this scene the way we would have liked to. So, Joe, what is the, the lower rattlesnake? Is that a neighborhood in Missoula? Yeah, so it's a neighborhood that 
extends out of the rattlesnake wilderness. So if you take, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a one way in one way out. Hmm. How much Joe, how much information did you have at this time? Like as you were leaving the SAR warehouse, some of that information was not initially available. What we, what I did know leaving the warehouse is that an avalanche had come down off of Mount Jumbo into a neighborhood into the rattlesnake and that the avalanche had destroyed at least one house and that there were people missing. And, you know, that, that, that broad, that general information is pretty typical when we deal with you know, search and rescue responses where uh, we're still trying to sort through the exact detail of exactly what's happening. And so with that information, although it's broad, we understood that it was a significant um, you know, search and rescue call out. It was a, a, a big incident that was happening. We understood that there were multiple agencies responding to, to the incident and that, uh, you know, our, our services were part of that overall big operating picture. At the time, we weren't really sure what we were getting into. We didn't know what our mission was going to be. Um, most times we show up, we're skied up, skinned up, ready to go up a trailhead. This was a little different. Uh, we weren't sure if our mission was going to be a you know avalanche rescue or if they were going to send us up on the ridge to do some recon on what's what's going on up there. So we we had a I remember having a talk with um, with our crew. What what gear are we bringing? Uh, what are we going to wear on our feet? You know, we all decided to wear ski boots. Were you able to drive right up to the to the block? Uh, we parked a little ways away, and uh, as we were, were parking, I remember the, the chaplain for the Missoula County Sheriff's Office, he was driving out with the, the mother of one of the children that had been buried by the avalanche and then subsequently um, recovered. And uh, so that was a, a, you know, a thing that right as, as our search and rescue vehicle is pulling up, that uh, one of the, the young individuals that was buried was actually being transported via ambulance. So that was a very, uh, you know, kind of uplifting yet scary situation because we were not aware of what that, that child's condition was at the time. But we were happy that, you know, someone uh, who was in an avalanche who obviously clearly wouldn't have and didn't have uh, a transceiver on uh, was able to be located. So we were happy to, to, to bear witness to that. As you can imagine, it was it was total chaos. The avalanche had swept down, had completely torn a house from its foundation. Um, and so as the first units arrived, uh, they'd gotten word that there was some burials. Um, there's live power lines that are down. Uh, there's a hit and blowing gas line in the fire department. We have very strict framework for trying to manage scene safety, rescuer safety, you know, is our top priority. But in this point, it was really difficult to try and have a completely safe and managed scene, um, having a natural disaster of this magnitude in a residential area. Um, our command and control was pretty hindered. There was no way for us to control this scene the way we would have liked to. Hmm. So what were the next steps like? How How was the command structure already in place or, or 
evolving at that time? You know, the command structure was absolutely evolving uh, at that time. You know, one of one of my initial duties was to to be the that kind of uh, liaison, that incident commander for the search and rescue, uh, you know, uh, entity, and. Uh, what we ended up doing is we we set up unified command, and uh, unified command allows each organization to to you know organize themselves in ways that they've trained and ways that they've planned for, yet have all those you know kind of key uh, players of each organization be able to talk to one another. And so, with the fire department, with uh, the police, with uh, the sheriff's office, uh, we were able just to have uh, you know kind of a quick huddle of you know what our our plan of of action was going to be and a lot of that hinged around a couple really important things first we identified that there were live electrical wires on scene and that's absolutely a big big safety concern that is a life threat um, if unmanaged so that was one component the second component is that you you could absolutely very clearly smell um, you know uh, natural gas and that that potent smell was was something that was uh, again a safety cause of concern for us, and we don't know where that gas was coming from, and we needed to make sure that that got shut off. And then third uh, was the 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 possibility of another slide, and so you know although the conditions were such where we couldn't see up that mountain up that slope, uh, you know our. Our teams identified the fact that, hey, this might slide again. We just don't know. Uh, and so, you know, with those those main concerns in mind, we made sure that, uh, you know, the, the electrical company, uh, Northwestern Energy, was on scene. We made sure um, that, you know, uh, gas representatives, that they were there, uh, you know, with their equipment monitoring the levels of, of gas in the air around us. And then we made sure that the folks from the, the local, um, you know, um, Avalanche Forecasting Center were, were on scene and they were able to get eyes, um, you know, on, on different areas to, to try to give us the, their best estimation as to, to what we should be concerned about, what we should be thinking about from that safety perspective. When we rolled in, first person that I uh, made, made eye contact with was Matt Kearns. There were, there were two operations going on there was the the obvious search and rescue part of the operation um and that ended up getting turned over to missoula county search and rescue and joe blattner was kind of leading the team on that end matt how many how many people would you estimate were there just bystanders that were trying to help but at the at the point that you got there that's an interesting point so missoula is a very outdoor oriented community. By the time I had showed up, all of the neighbors had already congregated in the area. There was a probe line starting. Um, everyone in the back of their car had a shovel probe and a transceiver, you know, and trying to manage the uh, would-be rescuers was probably the most stressful part, especially on the job of the incident commander. Um, normally he's able to, to run a scene. He knows how many people are there. He knows their names. And then he rolls up to try and manage the scene where there's probably a hundred people from the community at the height of it. Um, and they were so emotionally connected, you know, being part of their community that there was no way that we were going to be able to close the scene, pull everyone off, get some sort of control and then re-enter. So we just had to manage it as best we could. 
And when you take these huge problems and start chopping them up into smaller ones, it, it tends to make it a little more manageable overall. Yeah, there were easily, you know, three to four dozen community members that showed up that were doing various tasks, whether it was, you know, digging along a fence line and, and where in which, uh, you know, uh, people believe that the, the, some of the children were playing. Um, we also had people closer to the, the street itself starting to clear the street off so emergency vehicles could travel through. So there's there's dozens of people that were were out there and ready to go. Mm. How did you all deal with accountability for those um, people that are now volunteer rescuers? You know, that, that was one of the things uh, in which we, we certainly learned a lesson that day uh, in terms of uh, people's ability to access that, that site. Because that path, you know, opened up on uh, a couple different sides of a street, uh, people could access from different areas. What we did initially is uh, something that I, I understand as, as, you know, citizen uh, responders or agency responders had a hard time with, but we recalled everybody who was actively currently working. Mm. And it's, it seemed like a, a, a very big slowdown from people out there you know, digging um, into more of a, a systematic approach. And so, you know, what we're able to do uh, was, you know, organize small teams of people uh, to, to get on scene and to start to, to work through either a probe pole search um, or just a, a, a kind of a, a best guess pocket search of where, you know, a human, an individual might wind up. We tied in with Joe and we started a probe line. It turned into something that, you know, an avalanche course or training that you would do. Um, it it just wasn't really applicable in a way it was pretty much every probe strike you were hitting something that could have felt like a person and you know the whole line is feeling that so you might you might dip your probe and you feel a blanket you know is that a person or a book or whatever it was we found all sorts of of items but we had to act on them we tried to distinguish if we thought it was you know, a, a legitimate hit on something. And if it was, we were digging. So it's really hard to make progress through a debris field that was filled with bricks and a lot of items that you would normally not see on an avalanche. Initially, the units that got on scene were savvy enough to start spot probing the high probability areas. Um, you know, these avalanches will flow, um, kind of a fluid dynamic and, and people will settle and things will settle um, behind catchment features or in terrain traps. Um, within an hour, um, there was a probe strike and uh, that Phoenix was found. And he was buried about three feet deep. Um, he was not breathing, apneic, blue in the face. Um, his airway was cleared, rescue breast given. He started breathing on his own extricated him to the hospital. You know, after, after some searching, there was a, uh, an individual who was able to, to make a probe pole um, strike on something that they felt could be a person. Um, and so when we had those, uh, you know, the probe pole strike, we had a team come in with shovels and start to, un, uh, you know, kind of unbury that, that particular thing. 
And uh, this one in particular turned out to be a person. And the adult male who was in his house at the time of the, the avalanche uh, was found underneath a chimney. Uh, the chimney created a pocket of space for this individual uh, where he was, um, you know, able to, to continue to breathe. And uh, we were able to, to, you know, unbury him um, and, you know, start some medical care. So, Joe, at this point, did you have a pretty good, did you have pretty high confidence of knowing how many victims were involved? At that point, yes. Um, <clears throat> what, what we found out from the second person that was pulled out, the gentleman that was, um, we had made contact with under the snow, um, he said that he had been sitting next to his wife. And so we knew we had um, uh, a third person that we were looking for. At that point, we were pretty confident it was just just one more person, that two had been rescued and there was still one missing. Yeah, and, you know, we're trained as avalanche professionals to, like, that 15-minute window is, is so critical. And here we are, you know, two hours after this thing, and, um, you know, the, the thought that there's a third person under there and that they would be alive is just hard to really kind of wrap wrap around. I mean, it didn't change how we did anything. We were still actively searching. It was a rescue, but it's just hard to believe, you know, at that how much time had elapsed and how cold it was out there that someone could still be alive, you know. What was most productive for us is that he was able to report back um, you know, some of the, the events that led up to that avalanche. He was able to recall exactly where he was standing in his house. He was able to recall where his wife was in relation to him. Um, he was unaware of what actually happened. You know, with that picture of information that we had from him, we were able to start a, a better search for his wife uh, because we, we had a, a broader idea of where she was at the time of that incident. So, so after you made contact with Fred, who was the second um, person, and he said that his wife was right next to him, um, you all were spot probing right in that same vicinity? There, there were people uh, continuing to look in that area. We had actually moved um, down slope from, from where... Uh, from where he was located, thinking that maybe if she wasn't right there, maybe she got pushed further down, like towards the road. You know, as 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 this uh, scene started to, you know, kind of develop further, um, you know, as we noticed that, hey, we're starting to lose daylight. Um, some of the logistics started working on getting scene lights uh, for the area so that we can continue the search for as long as we needed. And as as that plan started to come to fruition, uh, there was a, a, a community member who was out, um, you know, digging in one particular area that came in contact with uh, the woman who was missing. We're in the zone. Well, about two or three feet away, someone probed uh, something and they they got a hit on something and they uh, just did a little hand dig and they found a hand. My buddy Dan and I were kind of right next to this person right away it's like we got we found her you know it it was looking grim at that point for us as a rescuers we were starting to get tired and, and 
you know, and that just that, that adrenaline, you know, just really, really pulled up. One of the things I do remember was that um, people kind of funneled to that area and we didn't know her orientation in the snow. Um, and I, I just remember really yelling a lot, like, we uh, don't collapse the airway, like stand back and we're doing a conveyor. Um, I wanted to make sure that we got back to the basics, even though this wasn't really a routine thing. So I ended up kind of organizing the shoveling. So I kind of directed everybody where to stand and got got her. And she wasn't really buried that deep. Uh, it was a piercing sound to hear, uh, we have her. Um, or it was you know, something um, something equivalent to that. And so uh, first responder team, some search and rescue members and, and other folks were able to go right to uh, to her. It, it was really hard, especially too. it was dark at mm. that time um, to really assess like what the scene where what exactly was, you know, because it, it was snowing, too, on top of everything. The shoveling didn't take that long. Um, she she was actually buried horizontally. So. She wasn't that deep, which is great. Um, she was able to do a, a, a grip on, on a hand. She couldn't communicate verbally, but... And what's important to note here um, is that, you know, with, with all the resources we had, um, you know, one of the things that was utilized in that, that the, the process to, to dig her out was a dinner plate that was found. That was part of, part of their... And that allowed us to, to get in right close to her airway uh, to try to, to manage it without, you know, uh, causing any other further injuries. We were able to access her airway pretty, pretty darn quick uh, and determined that uh, there were some respirations that were happening. We had uh, search and rescue and the fire department, uh, and we share a medical director. That medical director was standing right behind us, uh, calling out the shots. Uh, and so we were able to, to get, uh, you know, initial critical access care to this person. Yeah, we got Messy in there. That's our. That's the local ambulance, and they got her on a stretcher and got her to St. Pat's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, at that point, um, you know, after she was evacuated from that scene, uh, that's when the, the scenes kind of started to demobilize. Uh, you know, the operation started to ramp down because we had located anyone and everyone who was determined to be missing at that time. And unfortunately, she passed away a couple days later. She- she did. Yeah. Yeah. But just, you know, three hours into a, an avalanche incident to have, have that hope that, you know, she could have lived was, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, hmm. And so what did that demobilization process look like? And, and talk a little bit about the community response. It, it's absolutely an unprecedented event. Uh, for us within our, say, recorded history here, it's a really fine line that responders walk. Uh, first, we're happy and, we, you know, there's a sense of accomplishment when um, we're able to, to do something like that. And then, you know, to follow that up, uh, also, it's, it's a very emotionally challenging thing because what we've identified is that there is someone who is buried for three hours you know, in, in compacted snow and you know, that the, the likelihood of an outcome um, that's negative is unfortunately high in, in these cases. And so while we feel good about the job that we did, um, you know, there's certainly heavy hearts about, you know, what might come of this. 
And so, you know, that scene immediately afterwards, while people were saying good job and, um, you know, kind of in in a way almost congratulating people on on a job well done, we realized that there's, you know, there's still a big journey ahead. And the journey ahead is is for people to survive who are impacted by this. The journey ahead is to allow the community to to grieve and to hopefully, um, you know, kind of rebuild. But what was what was amazing uh, to see is that uh, the the Missoula community in that area, in particular, they ran towards the 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 issue. They 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 said, "How can I help?" And you know that sense of belonging is something that drives a community and allows a community to to you know persevere through these types of events. This event must have taken a hold and, and shook up the Missoula community, especially in the Lower Rattlesnake neighborhood other other responses that you saw in the wake of this event um you know of course there was the the knee-jerk responses people you know wanted some semblance of 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 closure um and people kind of wanted closure and they really wanted to point a finger and i'm really glad that the county attorney um you know prevailed and cool heads prevailed and that they didn't um prosecute um the gentleman who set the slide off you know i don't think it was negligent i think it was a, a tragic tragic accident but i did believe it was an accident but i think it woke everyone up these things can happen can happen in your backyard i think generally uh although some people were upset i think most of the community was understanding um that they didn't really know what they were getting themselves into sure. so yeah but uh you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to, to look in the shoes of somebody, somebody else, you know, and, you know, I, I think, um, they just saw, Hey, there's a lot of snow up there. Let's go have a good time. And, you know, for all I know, they didn't even know there was a home under the run out. You know? sure. So, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think Missoula was pretty understanding of it all. Um, so it was, it was kind of good to see that. Right. Uh, Joe, to your knowledge, is, is there any sort of, um, formal warning system that is in place for the, the, the neighborhood of the lower rattlesnake neighborhood? You know, in terms of a, a pinpoint, um, you know, notification system for them, I'm not aware uh, that doesn't mean that it might not exist. I'm just personally not aware of it. What I do know is that the uh, the, the forecasting center here has now identified, you know, all of these components that build, uh, you know, to this point where there might be an avalanche mm-hmm. in, you know, within the city limits. Mm-hmm. And so now that we have better data on these occurrences, we're able to better warn not only first responders, but also just the community at large, you know, in these types of conditions, uh, we shouldn't have humans walking around these slopes. We don't want any of those, you know, human triggered avalanches. So we want to uh, mitigate, minimize that risk. And, you know, those were some of the really good lessons learned that came from all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that would be a good question. Um, for the avalanche center, I think most of it's done through media, mm-hmm. you know, um, but, I'm not sure if they post anything uh, like at the trailheads, but <clears throat> I know they still maintain the the closures during the winter. Mm-hmm. I think they're really 
uh, making sure their signage is posted and clear and marked well. Yeah. So just trying to keep potential human triggers out of there, not just for yep. the habitat reasons, but for the avalanche hazard as well. Exactly. And, you know, with Missoula being, being a college town and a new cycle of people coming into town and not aware of what had happened in the past, um, it's really important, I feel like, that they keep up on that and make it very clear. Right. What are a few things that you and, and your fire department feel like were lessons learned in this sort of event? Because it's pretty unique in that you... I suppose most avalanche events in the backcountry that require search and rescue or are interagency have multiple agencies working together. Um, was this any different in that way? Um, it wasn't any different than, say, a backcountry avalanche as far as coordinating and working um, with other jurisdictions and, and, and other units. We had the backcountry um Ski patrol, we had search and rescue, sheriffs, police, fire. And in our world, we're, we're used to working in what we call the unified command structure. Mm-hmm. And that's knowing that when you have these complex scenes, you need to get um, ahead from each one of these players and get them all together um, so that decisions are being made with one mind and that orders are begin, being given with one voice. You know, it just kind of unifies that whole scene. Um, sure. as far as the lessons learned, um, so again, this was one of those low frequency, high complexity events that is really hard to train for. Um, so one of the lessons learned was to quickly implement this unified command system so that we're operating under a common plan procedure. Um, one of the biggest things, lessons learned, um, that I think we may revisit in some other natural disaster is just how to manage the civilian rescuers. You know, like I said, they were, they knew these people on a personal level and and they were emotionally invested in this rescue. And there was no way that we were going to be able to pull them off without having a feeding frenzy on our hands. So post-incident, we've come up with some different ways on how to manage the civilian rescuers to keep them engaged so they don't feel discouraged, um, but also to try and uh, capture those numbers and know who we have there so, so that we know that everyone made it home at the end of it. Simplify your communications plans. Utilize technical specialists. And that's what I came in to do is to help kind of um, review the scene and kind of decide where we could make some tweaks. The biggest thing that I think we learned from it was it was to get out in front of the social media. More people within the community knew about it than even the professionals. We got dispatched two minutes after the avalanche hit and we were on scene within three or four minutes. There was already a huge cadre of people there. The follow-up to all this, uh, as I mentioned, search and rescue, we say, hey, you know, we, we do stuff with uh, avalanches in the backcountry. Missoula Fire Department, they deal with a structural collapse. Well, uh, you know, after this event, we said, let's get something scheduled where we're cooperatively working together and we're dealing with this type of scenario. And that cooperative training um, has persisted over the years since this incident. And we can uh, mobilize quickly and we're able to do it safely. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, what are some other aspects of this rescue that that you learned a lot from i mean this is a pretty unique type of search and rescue scenario what are some other takeaways from the 
on the scene rescue? Yeah. So, um, couple things is communication within, with different organizations uh, and with your own people on a long duration incident with many different, uh, missions going on at the same time, just the communication within other or with other organizations as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was a community, a community lesson that was kind of learned was, you know, is this something we need to prepare for in the future? Was this just an anomaly or is this going to happen again someday? Well, um, it's not unreasonable to think that if the winds load right and we get enough snow, sure, and a trigger, it's going to slide. So um, that that was kind of really looked at in our debriefing and how they're going to address that. So I know the fire department, were they were one of the first people on the scene. Um, they, to my knowledge, didn't really have a lot of avalanche equipment and training. And that's something that they've been doing a lot up at Snowball and putting shovels on their rigs in wintertime and making sure that they're prepared for something like that. That communication of just, um, you know, normally on an avalanche scene, you're, you're thinking contamination, like in case they're bringing dogs, like let's keep everything clean. In a way, um, that was hard to do because of the amount of people that were there and just all the other stuff that was laying around in the snow. I can imagine that being a challenge, just managing the bystanders. Right. And, and like you said, not trying, trying not to contaminate the scene too much and, and just keeping some form of command and organization. Yeah, it, it was hard, but you know, luckily the, the police had set up that perimeter and they did a really good job. I felt of, of, you know, once people, once the bystanders were removed from the scene, just trying to keep people away a little Mm -hmm. bit. Like one thing that I I feel like you could go into a little bit deeper would be just kind of like how the ins and outs of communication. Did you guys have radios? Did you, was it just, um, you know, voice contact with one another or kind of like, because I feel like that's, that's a key part to an organized rescue is communication. And, and how does that happen in a small area with so many different agencies working together? Yeah. So one of the nice things about the, the scene, the, the uh, geography of the scene is that it was on a flat, it was pretty flat. The runout was flat where the rescue was taking place um, we did have radios, but we never turned them on. Uh, we didn't need to. I could pretty much make <clears throat> uh, face-to-face. I could make eye contact from the command, uh, even if I was on the other side of the incident, for the most part. And that was really nice. Um, because I think if you if we had to add an element of radio communication, and I'm sure certain people were using radios, <clears throat> but the face to face was really nice. Mm-hmm. It was pretty easy for me to run and tie in with Joe if I needed to. Um, you know, in one minute I could be face to face with him. So, right. In the future, you know, why we have those uh, common channels that we don't really get to use that much. Um, but I would imagine they would come in really handy for something like this. Yeah, absolutely. 
Joe, I was hoping you could talk just briefly. I know, I know we're kind of running on here, but, um, how about recovery for the rescuers? Any, any, and this, this is a, a larger topic, not just isolated to this incident, but issues of PTSD with, with the rescuers. Yeah, that's a really good question. And so, you know, a, a couple things, what, uh, within Missoula County Search and Rescue, we have access to uh, to some resources in in large part uh, a chaplain who is part of the sheriff's office and uh, is available to to not only have a debrief with the the responders as as a group, but also they're available uh, to individual people that want to just sit down and talk. Uh, and so, you know, that's certainly something that's that's valuable important and made available to, to, to us as responders. You know, one of the in, important things to know is an emerging theme within medicine, specifically wilderness medicine, is this concept of psychological first aid and being able to identify the need to, you know, take care of oneself, um, you know, in terms of psychologically speaking, um, that it's important and it shouldn't be uh, um, looked past. Um, what really good care providers do in the moment is that they're able to to take some of these these very drastic and and you know um, um, really negative situations and scenes. They're able to file it away, and they're able to to take care of the task at hand. And what phenomenal responders do, um, they're able to then identify that hey, I filed something away that it might have you know an impact on me psychologically, and I need to, to, to pull that out and address it somehow. And so I'm thankful that we have resources within uh, Search and Rescue to help our members um, and that, you know, the community at large, um, you know, this should be a, an item that gets mentioned to them as well so that they know that uh, they're not alone when they're dealing with some, some difficult uh, kind of thoughts um, or challenging situations that they were presented with. Mm. So it sounds like you're saying uh, sometimes our best defense at the moment is to kind of suppress some of these things, but not keep those things suppressed in our minds, our emotions, and and eventually, hopefully, talk through them. Absolutely. Uh, that's that's absolutely what it is. And that talking through process might just be informal with friends who are part of that rescue and where it might be a more formal process, but either way, that's an important part of the recovery uh, that we need to to consider as part of the overall kind of rescue process. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today, and uh, I'll be in touch. All righty. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Joe. Have a good one. Well, Matt, thanks a lot for your, your service to your community and and uh, specifically in this event, I think uh, probably helped to save save some lives. Thanks for the call, Caleb, and, and keep up the good work with the podcast. Hey, thanks. Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate you taking the time to tell your your side of the story of this. Hey, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. You take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed hearing that tragic yet riveting story um, about the events 
after the avalanche accident on Mount Jumbo. Hey everybody, it's Laura McGladry. Some of you might have caught my conversation with Caleb earlier this season in episode 5.2. And if you did, you probably remember that we actually talked about this avalanche season and how we're anticipating that many of us in rescue um, response and forecasting were we're going to be heading into this season with um, some stressors already and anticipated other stressors. And as it's turned out, as many of you know, um, it's been a really tough season so far. Um, I've certainly gotten a lot of outreach and heard from a lot of communities, both who are struggling because they've lost one of their own or many of their own, even if they're not in the same area from the rescuers um, who've responded on scene and from the forecasters who are um, trying to share with everyone how dangerous this situation is. So I thought it might be a good time for us to circle back and revisit this conversation. And we at Responder Alliance will host a, a community gathering to talk about strengthening community resources in a time of grief and loss, and especially in an unusual time Um, during COVID, you know, one of the things we're seeing is really just that, again, we cannot use our typical resources in community and with each other of getting together, being in each other's homes and seeing each other's faces and gatherings. So we really have to be intentional. And I think um, as much as many of the forecasts are considerable danger right now, I, I think it's important that we also maybe shine a flashlight and bring awareness to the fact that this is a really um, impactful time for a lot of us. And um, we know we're not through it yet. And so it's probably a good time to just be together and um, share resources and maybe think of a way again to revisit best practices of um, what communities and tribes have always done and what we've always been good at which is coming around each other and supporting each other and so feel free to join us um, in that evening the evening will be march 4th you can register at www.responderalliance.com under events and um, just um, keep doing good out there, taking care of each other, and hang in there. We hope you're enjoying listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. We hope that you're maybe staying more safe in the backcountry because of it. That's my hope, at least. Um, and if you're enjoying it, please tell a friend. If you're really enjoying it, please do us a solid and go over to Apple Podcast and rate and review the podcast there. Our artwork, of course, was created by Mike T, Peter Man T. If you need any artwork done, maybe you're making a new logo, gotta go check out T's website, www.mikeT.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks for your contribution to the show, Chris. Again, most of the editing and production of this episode was performed by the one and only Wesley Gregg, our Canadian correspondent. Thanks so much, Wes. Great job. Don't forget to tag us in a social media post to be entered to win a new El Profesional snow saw from Primo Snow and Avalanche. Just tag us at the Avalanche Hour podcast 
in a post of you out in the backcountry making good decisions, no doubt, and you'll be entered to win. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.